um, appropriate for a revival. And I know we talk about revivals as kind of an old term a lot for a lot of churches, and the revivals themselves were like reaching out and were evangelistic. And we talked about the fact that one of the things the church needs right now is, well, this sounds really loud. Am I too loud? Can you guys can, Okay. Um, needs right now is an evangelistic spirit itself. And so tonight and tomorrow, and I, I think the way we figured it, I'm preaching four sermons, and two of them are actually going to be tomorrow. So if you work it right, you can be at all four. I don't, I'm not sure you're going to have to figure out how to do that. But I think I'm preaching uh, the second one, if I get this right, at 8 o'clock. And, and, at the, and the third service, and then in the middle I'm preaching the third one, and then the fourth one Sunday night. Um, but I have been working hard to think of four sermons that fit together with this theme, living proof, that we all in the church are to live lives of living proof. And I don't want this weekend to be some kind of a nice little get-together. I really don't want it to be that. I want it to be an equipping weekend, I want it to be a challenging weekend for all of us. And guys, we're talking about uh, eternity. We're talking about huge stuff. We're talking about the most important stuff we could be talking about right now. And if I were to even uh, suggest a book for you to read right now, and I mentioned this book uh, to James, it's, just called, it's called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. I don't know if you've seen that book. Uh, somebody gave it to me recently by Mark Cahill. And uh, think about it. What's one thing you can't do in heaven? Evangelism. You can't do evangelism in heaven. And uh, this book is chock full of very interesting, up-to-date stories of Mark's life. And uh, I think you'll read it. I don't think you'll be intimidated by the fact, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, or I'm not as talented as Mark. He talks to so many people in natural ways and having spiritual conversations. And sometimes they're very um, small conversations, very uh, people he meets in the mall, things like that. And he actually talks about uh, meeting and talking to Michael Jordan and witnessing to him, which is very difficult for him to do, and he did it in a natural way. He didn't try to cram Jesus down Michael Jordan's mouth. But Mark used to be a basketball player for uh, the University of Phoenix. He was very good friends with Charles Barkley. That's how he got involved in that scene with, with Michael Jordan. But it's like everybody from celebrities to the person that lives next door, how do you talk to them about Jesus? And just to, to read just a tiny bit at the beginning uh, to set our kind of theme for this weekend, he said, uh, 300 million years from now, what will be the only thing that matters? 300 million years from now. Will it matter how much money you made? Will it matter what kind of car you drove? Will it matter who won the NCAA basketball tournament, which seems like everybody's concerned about right now? Will it matter who you took to the homecoming dance? No. He said 300 million years from now, the only thing that will matter is whether you're in heaven or hell. That's the only thing that will matter. And if that is the only thing that will matter then, then that should be one of our greatest concerns now. And the real question then is, what are, you going, what are you doing of significance today that will matter 300 million plus years from now? And then he mentions later, approximately 150,000 people will die today. 150,000 people will die today 
I wonder where each of them will spend eternity. Guys, we're talking about a really serious topic tonight and tomorrow. And I, I think this church has a problem. And it's a problem that a lot of churches have, uh, that, and a lot of churches I've visited. And the problem is this. It's kind of like we think that evangelism is a job of someone who is a trained minister, someone who's been to Bible college. And that's our problem. And I'm going to do everything I can to debunk that and to try to convince you that that is not, it's not James's issue, it's not Ken's issue, it's not someone who's been to Bible college. It's every single believer in the church has a responsibility to be a witness for Jesus. And I don't want to scare you about that because you don't have to change your personality and you don't have to become like a used car salesman and you don't have to learn high-pressure techniques. You just have to learn how to tell your story. And you have to learn how to interact with non-believers. And so I'm praying that tonight will be kind of the start of that. And I want to lay the foundation with this title of Living Proof Through Authentic Lives. And we've got to start here, guys. We've got to start with our own, our own lives. We are to be actual living proof that God is real and that God's love is real to the watching world. And we give that living proof through living, real, authentic lives. I think some people passed out uh, the, the kind of a slip of paper that has my outline. Uh, if you want to use that, you can. I'll just, there's just four main points, and you can fill that in if you want to. Uh, the first one is authentic character. I want to talk, what does it mean to have authentic character? And uh, we're going to look at Matthew 5, 14 through 16, and start with, and I think the scripture is going to be on the screen, most of them tonight. Uh, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, this actually might have confused a few of his disciples, because on another occasion in John 8, it records that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And here he said, you are the light of the world. And Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. And they finally think, well, okay, Jesus, which one is it? Of course, we can think of lots of ways to put these two things together. My favorite is the moon. And the moon does not generate its own light. The moon reflects the light of the sun. That's my favorite way of talking about this, that we are to reflect the light. And there's so many things about the metaphor of light that I like. A light guides, a light warns, a light illuminates, a light can, uh, can also repel if you shine too much light in someone's face, but a light can be attractive. But I love the idea that it's not our light, guys, and I don't know if you're like me, but you, sometimes you wake up in the morning, you can't generate much light. But you can try to get close to Jesus and reflect his light uh, to somebody else. So I, I, lo I love this idea of light. If you look at Philippians 2, there's another metaphor that's also about light. In verses 14 to 16, Paul says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Just a couple nights ago, I... It was warm, and I, I remember parking the car in the garage, and as I was walking to the house, I just stopped. I, and we live out in the country a couple miles out from Mount Pulaski, and, and I looked up, and the, the sky was so beautiful, and all of the stars looked like diamonds 
on black velvet. And of course, in a jewelry store, that's how they show you diamonds on black velvet because they want you to see the contrast, right? They want you to see the contrast. And Paul said that's what our lives should be in the middle of this world, this dark world. People should be able to look at our life, our authentic life, and see us shining and see us so different. And I know that sometimes that isn't the way it is, is it? What do people see when they see our lives? What do they see? Do they see a huge contrast between our values and the values of the world? Well, let's just look at verse 14 there again. It says, it says, do everything without complaining. Don't rush over that. Let's just talk about that for a second. Do everything without complaining. I think Americans are the worst complainers around. And we not only think it's our uh, right to complain, we actually think it's our duty to complain. And we complain about everything. What if we just did that? What if all of a sudden the believers at the Taylorville Christian Church, and I'm being serious here, I'm not kidding, if everybody here tonight, a member of this church, decided from now on, I'm going to do everything without complaining. Do you think somebody would notice? I do. I think somebody would notice. And maybe we'll be on that journey of being that star in a black sky that's shining, and someone might even look at our lives and say, why are you different? You don't grumble and complain like everybody else around here. And, and we begin to think about the way we look to others. And I know most surveys, and I get discouraged when I read these surveys. I, my preacher at Mount Pulaski just gave one the other night at a board meeting, and it just basically it seems to always come up that there's not much difference between Christians and non-Christians. And it almost doesn't matter what the category is. And we could talk about the amount of debt that we have. <clears throat> we could talk about the movies that we watch. We could talk about divorce rates. We could talk about viewing pornography. Uh, we could talk about how we gossip. I mean, we could talk about all these different categories. And we can say, can people tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? And so many times we can't. And I just want to say, with God, character matters. And image is nothing. With God, character matters. Authentic lives matter. Why? Because we want people to get to heaven. We want people to see Jesus in us. We want people to wonder what we've got that they don't have. If we want to evangelize in Taylorville and in this region, I just think we've got to get serious about shining the light of character We've got to get serious about growing and changing and allowing God to transform us so that we look a little bit more like Jesus. And people will start to take notice. And I'm not talking about the ministers of this church. I'm talking about every single member of this church. True Jesus-like character, I think, is both uh, surprising, kind of shocks people, and it's also attractive. And all I've got to think about is Acts 2. Acts 2 and Acts 4. There's two little paragraphs. We're not going to turn there. But you remember the description of the first church in the city of Jerusalem. And they talked about loving each other and, and not having any poor people among them because they shared their possessions with each other. They ate in each other's homes. It just sounds an awful lot like they liked each other. 
And the world took notice of that church. And a simple phrase in Acts 2 and says, And the Lord added to their number daily. I think he can do it again in Taylorville. I think he can do it again. I think if there was a church here where people loved each other at that deep level and they lived authentic lives, I think people would be attracted to this church. Light is all about being authentic and real. I think light is all about living a life of integrity. And the word integrity, the root of that word, it means wholeness and complete. It means a person who is undivided. And so a gut check question for us tonight would be, do, do you and I act out in our life, in our speech, what we deeply believe to be true? That's the question. Do we, do we live it out? Do, do they, are they, did they have integrity? Do they, do they go together? Brennan Manning said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then they walk out the door and they deny it by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. We've got to start here, guys. Revival? You know, you know the old phrase, revival's got to start with us. It's got to start with me. It's got to start with you looking at our heart, looking at our character. And, and I know what some of you are already thinking. You're thinking, Mike, I've already blown it. Mike, I've already made some bad decisions. Mike, I don't think I can be a good witness for Jesus because I've already blown it. Well, let me get to point number two. Point number two is authentic confession. Authentic confession. Because when I talk about integrity tonight and an authentic life, I am not talking about a perfect life. That is not what I'm talking. None of you guys can do that anyway. Nobody can. Authentic confession. Let's look at 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live by the truth. And then notice what it says next in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Walking in the light. What's that mean? I believe it means living a transparent life, a real life, an authentic life. It's not a fake life. You do not wear a mask. You don't have a Sunday life and a Saturday life. You don't have those. It's like what you see is what you get. You are the same person all the time. You are walking in the life. You are not fake. You are not phony. You are real. I did not say you are perfect. I just said you're real. And I think that's what we're looking for. Living a life of integrity doesn't mean a life of perfection. Perfection. The fact is we're all broken people. And we've all screwed up. We've all messed up. Every single one of us have done that. The point is living a life of integrity is you're honest about it. You're honest about it. I just think it's, it's easy to think that we've blown our witness when we mess up. And I just want to suggest tonight that we might actually be on the verge of a very strong witness for Jesus, it depends on what we do with it when we mess up. It depends on whether we try to hide it and pretend we didn't mess up, and then we are open to the accusation of hypocrite. Oh, that church over there, they're just full of a bunch of hypocrites. But if you confess it, and you're honest about when you, when you blow it, you might be surprised at how God uses an honest confession. 
Let me illustrate. I have a lot of students that work at Cracker Barrel in Lincoln. They work at Walmart and lots of other places. And, and let's just give an illustration of one night, uh, Brandon. Brandon is one of my students who works at Cracker Barrel. He's a waiter there. And let's say Brandon, during the supper rush time, and all the people are going in and out of the kitchen, and it gets really heated, and, and some people were forgetting some of their assignments, and Brandon's getting a little bit upset about it, and he's finally getting upset at one of his coworkers, and then he lashes out at his coworker, and, 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 and he just tells him, you know, in no certain terms that he wasn't happy about what he did, and he, he, just, he just kind of balls him out. Well, let's say later that night, Brandon starts to calm down, and he realizes, holy cow, that wasn't very Christ-like. I really, I really, man, I think I may have blown my witness with my coworker. Could you imagine a conversation with me that night when they're checking out and getting ready to go home and they go out in the parking lot and Brandon says to his coworker, hey, could I talk to you for a second? Sure. I just want to apologize tonight for, for kind of blowing up at you during that, the supper rush. He said, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian, and I know Jesus doesn't want us to treat people like that, and I'm really, really sorry. I just want you to know that that might be the strongest witness that that other person's ever heard about Jesus Christ. And it did not come from a perfect person. It came from an honest person. So tonight, when I talk about authentic lives, that's what I'm talking about. Talking about being real, being authentic with, 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 with how, we, how we deal with things. And I, I've always wondered how a person could be blameless. And I remember hearing the word blameless, like even in the list of qualifications for an elder. And I'm thinking, well, how could a person be blameless? And I used to think blameless equaled perfection. And then I finally thought of a way that I could be blameless. And, and this is just my thinking on this, and I don't know if this is a good way to think or not, but... I thought, you know what, when you blame someone, it's an accusation of another person who kind of catches you and, and accuses you of doing something. And I said, you know what, what I could do is when I blow it, when I screw up and I mess up, how about if I just blame myself first really quickly and in front of other people and say, man, I, I did it, I'm sorry, I, that was me. Guess what, if I blame myself first through open confession, nobody else can blame me. I've taken that away. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? You can live a blameless life if you live a confessing life. And if you have confessing, you're being authentic. You might be surprised how God will use all of us broken people who keep screwing up. If we would just be honest. I think part of the secret to reaching out to broken people and lost people is admitting that we too are broken and that we are on the same level. I just think we need horizontal definitions of evangelism. We need ones that go like, you've heard them, one beggar telling another beggar where to find some bread. That's horizontal, isn't it? Or one sinner telling another sinner where to find grace. That's horizontal. And our problem comes whenever we look down on people. And if we catch ourselves looking down on someone with a condemning attitude... We have lost the power of evangelism in that moment. Does that make sense? We've got to realize that we are broken people, and we need God's grace just like everybody else. I just Last night, Julie and I just watched the movie Ragamuffin. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's about Rich Mullins. It's a true story about his life. And in the movie, Brennan Manning said to him, he said, we are all beggars at the door of God's mercy. 
Amen. And that includes me. We are all beggars at the door of God's mercy. If we remember that, I think we can live a more authentic life with people and even be willing to admit it when we, when we blow it. In James 5, verses 13 through 16, there's so many topics in that little passage, but I want to pull out a couple. It says, is anybody, any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anybody happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And then it says, and if he has sinned, I want you to kind of put your name there. If you have sinned, it says he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And let me just add that. I want to say that confession of sin is a powerful way to witness for Jesus. It's a powerful way to show that you are authentic and that you are real. Point number three is authentic compassion. So we've, we talked about uh, this authentic character, like shining our light and and authentic confession. Now let's look at authentic compassion. I want to take you to Luke 19, verses 41 and 42. As Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he saw the city and he, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. I, I like to think about that for a second. Why was Jesus crying? And um, he's looking at the city. He's overlooking Jerusalem. I mean, is he crying because of the number of potholes? You know, man, horrible potholes. Is he crying because of the high taxes? Is he crying because the buildings are deteriorated? You know, you know why he's crying. Because of the people. It, it broke his heart. He wanted them to come to know the Lord and Father. And, and if... If you read in Luke 19, verse 10, a few verses earlier, it says, Jesus, the Son of Man, His mission was, was to come and to seek and to save the lost. And it, and it broke His heart when he, he saw these people and they, they were lost. And so I have a really serious question tonight. I want to ask, when's the last time that you wept over Taylorville? I'm, I'm serious. When's the last time you wept you're driving down the highway or down the country and you see, the, you see one of the water towers in the distance and all of a sudden you just start breaking down in your car, your truck, and you just start weeping because of the people that live in the city that do not know Jesus and your heart is literally broken for them. And if you can't think that wide, maybe you just need to ask this question, when's the last time you cried tears over a person? that doesn't know Jesus. And you know if they don't find Jesus, they're not going to be in heaven with you. You know that. When's the last time you cried? I know some of you probably have shed tears recently, maybe even today. Some of you haven't cried for a long time. And some of you actually have cynical hearts, and some of your hearts have gotten hard and crusty. And one of the things you need to do this revival this weekend is say, God, would you break my crusty heart, my cynical heart, would you break it for the people that are lost all around me? 
in my neighborhood, at my work site. They're everywhere that I go. Do I see them like Jesus did? And I, I think part of, part of this compassion thing, guys, is actually being, having authentic emotions. Jesus wasn't afraid to cry. And he cried over the city. I mean, he cried at Lazarus' funeral. Remember that? And he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, and he still cried. Because he cried for the brokenness of Mary and Martha and those who were weeping, and it got Jesus. And I just think, I want the Taylorville Christian Church, I don't even know how to say it. It's not that I want you just to come every Sunday and just cry all the time, but I want you to be able to come every Sunday, and when you gather in small groups, and if you feel like crying, let the tears come. And when someone asks you, how are you doing, that you don't just give the answer, oh, I'm fine. Sometimes you're not fine. And it's okay to be happy. If you're happy, it's okay to be joyful. It's okay to say, man, I'm doing really well. It's okay to be honest. But it's not okay to be dishonest. And if you're not feeling well, you need to let somebody know. And I'm not saying you spill your guts to every single person on the sidewalk or in the hallway. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to feel so free and so authentic that this should be the safest place on earth, this building, should be the safest place in Taylorville for people to show emotions, for them to say, you know, I'm not doing very good right now. I'm actually depressed, or I'm very angry, or I just feel hopeless. People should be able to say that. You should be able to say that when you are feeling that. That's part of being authentic. That's part of authentic compassion is having authentic emotions. And when you think about other people, could I just ask you tonight, what is your compassion quotient for other people right now? How do you feel about other people? Do you like them? Do you love them? Or you like you know, Linus, the cartoon character? He said, he said oh, I, I love mankind. It's people I hate. It's people I hate. And by the way, they can tell if you like you. People can tell if you like them. And that may be the prayer for you tonight, is could I, could I be kind of come, become the kind of person, Jesus, could you transform my heart and maybe even my face so that the way I come off to people is they know that I like them? That's a pretty gutsy prayer. Because some of you need to have God transform your heart and your face. And I'm not saying you walk around with a smile all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your attitude toward people. And they can tell pretty quickly within a few seconds if you like them. And that may be where your compassion needs to grow tonight. If you truly care about people, then you will care if they're lost and don't know Jesus. Let me ask a question about searching for people that are lost. And let me just give an illustration um, Let's say someone was physically lost, and I'm going to use an illustration in my own family. Uh, this did not happen, but this could have happened. <laughs> uh, let's go back to when my youngest daughter, Sammy, let's say she was a preschooler, <clears throat> and she was always very active. And uh, we live in, out, in, out in the country, Mount Pulaski, and usually uh, we're usually s- surrounded on three sides by cornfields. Sometimes we have beans, but it seems like we have corn a lot. And some years we just have corn on all three sides. And, and you know what I'm talking about when, when you're in a situation like that and the cornfields are really high and it surrounds your house and you've got a small child and Sammy was very active and you could just imagine if one day I'm away at work and Julie's home and she's working in the kitchen and she goes to another room and, and for some reason the, the kitchen door didn't get latched 
And Sammy pushes it, and she goes out on the deck and goes down into the backyard, and she just takes off into the cornfield, and she just goes. And it takes a couple minutes for Julie to realize that she's gone, and she's, Sammy, Sammy, where you at? And she goes out on the deck, Sammy! And she looks all over it, and she starts panicking, and she can't find her. And her thought is she must have went into the cornfield. Now, in that kind of a situation, I can imagine Julie calling me, and we're, trying, we're kind of panicking about what are we going to do. And let's say somebody tells me about some search and rescue teams that might even be people on horseback or renting a helicopter, and they tell me about this, and, and it talks like it's very costly. I honestly don't care what it costs, do I? Because I care about that little girl, and I want her to come home. And it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost some time. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost some hard work. It's going to be urgent work. Guys, if we could take any of those emotions and transfer that into people that are spiritually lost, you get where I'm going tonight. We, can we have those kind of thought processes with people that are lost? Because it is urgent. Hell is real. People really do die without Jesus. It's serious stuff. It's eternal stuff. What if all people were special to you and to me? Would you be willing to search for them? Would you be willing to search for them carefully, looking everywhere? Maybe in neighborhoods you've never been to before, even in the town of Taylorville? Maybe houses and apartments and trailers you've never been around before? You people you've been tempted to avoid? Maybe people who don't dress like you? People that don't act like you? People that don't look like you? What about them? Could you ask God to, to break your heart at such a deep level that you go searching for people that don't know Jesus because they're special to God and they're special to you? That's why I always go back to the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. I just love that story because it's a story about God's love, God the Father. And you know the story how the son basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead, give me my money, and I'm out of here. And he goes and spends it on wine and women, and he loses all his money. And you know where he ends up in the pig pen, the, the absolute lowest place a Jewish boy could be, feeding pigs, which is an unclean animal to them. And then you, you, just, you just remember that. And then in Luke 15, verse 20, uh, it says, So this young boy got up, and he went back to his father. And it says, while he was still a long way off, and it, it almost tells you something about the dad, doesn't it? It tells you he's been looking every day. He's, he's been looking at the horizon. He's been looking for his boy to come home. His heart's been broken. And he wants his son to come home. And he, and he sees his son in the distance, a long way off. And it says he was, he was filled up with this compassion in his heart. And he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And I, I love the, the song that Benny Hester sings. And I know it was recorded later by... Phillips, Craig, and Dean. It's that song, When God Ran. I love that song. And the, and the song says, The only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me, took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, and said, My son's come home again. He looked in my face. He wiped the tears from my eyes. And with forgiveness in his voice, he said, Son, you know I still love you. I, I, I love that scene. I've had somebody paint it for me one time of a Jewish patriarch, a Jewish father, and you may have heard me say this when I was preaching here at Taylorville earlier, 
how, how this Jewish patriarch, this older man of the family, would always walk around very slowly and stately, and he have a long robe, and, and he's not in a hurry, and he goes into a room, and everybody would rise in his presence because he's the patriarch of the family. But this day was different. This day was different. He, he hikes up his robe, and he starts running as fast as he can to throw his arms around this boy that smells like pig manure, and you know what pig manure smells like, and, and, and it's like it's this picture of God's love. God is never in a hurry except when he's ready to welcome one of his children home. Then the Bible says he is in a hurry to do that. Boy, could we ask God to make us like him, to give us hearts like him. What a picture of God's heart. I'm thankful to Brian McLaren. Uh, I don't agree with everything he writes, but he helped me with my word choices for the word lost. And the word lost is a good word. Uh, in Luke 15, you know, the lost son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. It's a biblical word, but it, it just sounds negative sometimes when we say lost, and it almost sounds like loser. Um, and Brian said, why don't we change the word to something like missed or treasured? Why don't we look at people the way God looks at them? They're missed, and he wants them to come home. They're treasured. They bear his image, and he wants them to come home. Could we, could we look at him like that? It's been said that the church of Jesus Christ is the only institution on earth that exists for people who are not yet members. Is that the ethos of this church? Is that the thinking of this church? Is that the planning of this church? Is this what's in your heart? It's a hard question, isn't it? Do we, why do we exist? So we can have a really nice music service on Sunday morning and have a place to kind of hang out and have... Donuts and socialize, isn't it kind of nice to come? Is that why this church exists? I don't think so. I think this church exists for people who are not yet members of this church. Make sense? The Taylorville Christian Church is not supposed to be a, club, a clubhouse. It's supposed to be a lighthouse. We are here today and on Sunday simply to recharge, recharge our batteries, recharge our lights so that we can go out searching all week long, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. We're just always searching. And the church is not an exclusive club. The church is a very inclusive club. For God so loved the world, it just has one door, and that's Jesus. But it's not exclusive. It's inclusive. The lost are broken, but they're treasured and they're missed. Are you willing to pray, Lord, break my heart for the lost. Give me your eyes, give me your heart so I can see those who are lost and treasured and missed all around me. I've got one more point, last point tonight, is authentic conviction. So we talked about authentic character and, and compassion and confession. Now it's conviction. I, I kind of think this is what the, what the world's waiting for. Somebody that, somebody that really believes in something. And they're willing to stand up for it, not in bitterness, but with conviction. That they're actually, I think we're waiting for that for politics too, aren't we? We're waiting for it for lots of things. We're just waiting for someone to be a leader that has convictions and they're willing to stand up for it and even take the heat for it. Acts 4, 18 through 20. 
I don't know, I read this and I just want to be like Peter and John. Don't you? Well, think about Peter and John and the pressure they were under. They're, they've been hauled into the Sanhedrin. And, and it says in verse 18, Then they called them in again and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I just like the way Peter replied. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't shut up about it. We can't close our mouths about it. I'm sorry, you can beat us again. Throw us back in prison if you want. But we cannot stop speaking about Jesus because He is the most important thing in the world to us. Don't you guys just desire to have that again today for people in this church that would have, and I, some of the people in this church do have this conviction. It's like, I'm just, I, this is what I believe, and I'm going to stand for my convictions. And, and I'm not fighting people. I'm just going to stand for my convictions. And if I have to receive negative criticism and accusation and mocking, I'm okay with that. Jesus was okay with mocking. We have a Savior who put up with a lot of mocking and he even put up with the crucifixion. And he said, follow me. We should expect this, guys. This should not surprise us in this culture for Christians to be mocked. And, and this may sound really weird, but I almost feel like this is a good thing for the church, for the church to be pushed to the margins, because for a long time this church was just part of society, part of culture. Everybody was the same. Nobody make waves. And the church is being slowly pushed to the margins. I think it's a good place for the church so that we can stand up with conviction and the world can begin to see the difference between our life and our behavior and our speech and what we believe and what they believe. It's time to stand up. It's time, and I, and I actually think people are looking for people of conviction to follow. I was in the Congo in 1989 when they had the big Tiananmen Square incident with all the democracy protesters. And uh, I remember hearing about the young man who faced off the tent, off the tank. And actually, today, I, I watched the video again. Watch it, guys. If you want to see a, a story of conviction, just watch it. It's a CNN video they showed back in 1989, and they showed it so many times. There is this line of tanks, and this guy goes up and faces the first tank. And, and I just I get chills down my spine. He, did, he, he stops the tank, tells him to get out of there, and, and I just... Whether you believe what that young man was doing was stupid or not, you at least got to believe he believed in his convictions and he was willing to die for them. That's what we need in the church. We need people that believe in Jesus so much that you're willing to put up with all kinds of things in the name of Jesus and because of Jesus. We need conviction. One of my students just told me this week, her name is Becca, she just came back from Spain she went on her Restoration Week trip over there, and she met a Muslim, a Muslim background believer, a man who is now a believer in Jesus, and he's from Morocco, and there's a lot of Moroccans that live in southern Spain, and, and there's a ministry there that reaches out to the Muslims in Morocco that come to Spain. And this one Christian brother is such a strong preacher, and he even has gone on uh, television and been on certain... Uh, Christian TV shows that are shown all over the Middle East. 
And they asked him, they said, do you want to wear a mask? You, know, you can wear a mask, you don't have to show your face. And he preaches in Arabic to the Muslim world as a Christian believer. And he said, no, I, I don't think I should wear a mask. I, he doesn't wear a mask. And he preaches knowing that he gets death threats because Jesus is the most important thing to him and he wants the world to know that. I don't know, I hear stories about that, guys, and that just makes me think, I want to live that way. I want you to live that way. I think that's what we need. Authentic lives. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. I think if we really believe that Jesus is our Lord, and He was the Lord of all of our life, He was the Lord of our speech, He was the Lord of our credit cards, He was the Lord of our love life, He was the Lord of everything, people would notice. I just think people would notice. That's why this first sermon is about this topic. We've got to get the authentic life things settled before we're ready to witness, before we're ready to evangelize. We've got to get this settled. Is Jesus Lord? And Peter says, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. And then he said, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. He's not out there saying yell at people, scream at people. He's just saying, he's saying, live your life under the lordship of Christ. And, and here's what I think will happen. Uh, if you live an authentic life under the lordship of Christ, I think people are going to ask you the million-dollar question. And the million-dollar question to me is the question, why? Why? That, that question, why do you act the way you do? Why are you so nice to me? Why do you have the attitudes that you have? Why, when everybody here tells dirty stories, you go someplace else? Why is there no filth coming out of your mouth? Why are you so different? And I, tell, I call that the million-dollar evangelistic question because if anybody ever asks you that question, ever, I think your goal in life is to live your life in such a way that it demands an explanation. That is my favorite quote about evangelism. Live your life in such a way that it demands an explanation. Someone's going to ask you the million-dollar question. Why are you the way you are? And if they ever ask you that, then if you want to really get the door open for your witness, say something like, uh, you, you really want to know? You really want to know why? Most people will say, yeah, yeah, I really do want to know why. And then they just opened a door that a Mack truck could go through to talk about Jesus. And we're going to talk about it tomorrow, about what does it mean to tell your story. Because everybody in this room has a unique story with Jesus. We're going to talk about how to pray for people that are unbelievers. We're going to talk about how do you invite people to Jesus. How do you invite them into your life? How do you invite them to your church? We're going to talk about all that stuff. But tonight is laying the foundation. Can I live my life in such a way that somebody's going to ask me, why am I the way I am? Does that make sense? That, that's where the church has to be. The million dollar Question. Bill Hybels wrote a book called uh, Contagious Evangelism. I like the book. And in it he had, a, he had a formula. Not that you can make a, you know exact formula, but his formula went like this. He, had, he said HP plus CP plus CC equals what he called maximum evangelistic impact. And the HP part was what he called high potency. And when he talked about high potency, he meant an authentic Christian. 
a real, authentic Christian has high potency, high power. And then, and then the, uh, the, the CP was close proximity. That highly potent Christian does no good sitting in the salt shaker. He's got to be in close proximity with non-believers. And by the way, I just want you to know, that is my struggle. I, I teach at a, a Christian university. I'm an elder at the Mount Pulaski Christian Church. I could spend my whole life, every hour of my life, with Christians if I didn't intentionally make a way to get out of that bubble. Uh, my wife Julie works at a, in a, non, a, a non-Christian environment at least three days a week. She has a, she has a better opportunity than I do. And I've got to make, make opportunities to meet people. I remember one of them that God just kind of slapped me in the face, it seemed like, when I was younger and I'd go to volleyball games to watch my girls play volleyball, and I remember complaining about it. Remember that verse in Philippians about don't complain about anything? And I would complain about the hard bleachers and sitting on the bleachers and all that stuff. And God just kind of said, Mike, don't you? It's like God shook me and said, Mike, don't you realize this is your opportunity to be around non-believers? And you're blowing it with your complaints. And it was like a wake-up call for me. So I don't know where that proximity is for you. Some of you are going to have to work hard at this because some of you only hang out with Christians. Some of you in this church do not have to work hard at this because you're around non-Christians all the time. So the question is, what do we do? Are we highly potent? And the CC stands for clear communication, which we'll talk about that later too. But the question for tonight, what, what would happen? Just dream with me for a minute. What would happen if all the members of the Taylorville Christian Church, if all of them were living proof, living authentic Christian lives, lives for Jesus, what would happen? Now, I'm not just talking about living proof inside these four walls. I've got a couple slides here I want to show. I really appreciate uh, the team here working on this. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, I think you notice what that is. Um, those are the walls of the building. And I know what you're tempted to say and you're tempted to think. You're tempted to say, there's the church. There's the Taylorville Christian Church. And that is not true. There is a building that houses the Taylorville Christian Church uh, about once a week, or if you come here for other things. It's a building, and there's a purpose for us gathering. I want to go to the next slide. This is only representative. This is not exhaustive. Where you see those stars, that's the Taylorville Christian Church Monday through Saturday. You see that? I would like that just to visually imprint on your brain. And I want you to think, if in your mind's eye, if you could think of all the occupations that are represented in this church, and you think of everything from state workers to teachers to counselors to farmers, I mean, think of all the occupations represented in this church. And think of all the places these people go Monday through Saturday. And then you think, if, I were, if every one of them were living an authentic Christian life, the way we talked about it tonight, wow, what could happen? What could happen in this whole region? That's what I want you to think about. And I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it. I want you to believe in what we call the priesthood of all believers. And that's a phrase that's based on what Peter said, that we are a kingdom of priests. And it talks about it in Revelation, that we are a kingdom of priests. And a priest is just a go-between between between God and man. That's what the word priest means. It means a a bridge 
between God and man. And according to, to New Testament doctrine, New Testament teaching, I would say that every person that's been baptized into Jesus has been ordained into the priesthood. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Everybody is a priest. And I don't know if you ever heard me give this illustration before, but I, a few years ago I was preaching a revival in a little town in Greenview, Illinois, where I used to be youth minister years ago. And I actually made, I, I hope I, I don't think, I didn't get arrested for this or anything, but I made a bunch of uh, homemade priest collars, uh, that Roman collar. I cut, I cut out some, some white poster board, and I made a bunch of these priest collars. And uh, that night when I was preaching, I, I took my tie off, and I, I, put the, I had a button-down shirt, and I put one over here and this one and one and this one, and it made a little white square that for most people, when they see that white square, they see it as a symbol of a priest. And I did that right at the end of my sermon, and then I said, by the way, I've got 150 of these tonight, and I'm going to pass out one to everybody as you go out the door. And as I shook their hands, I passed them out to everyone that went out the door, and I just said, I dare you to wear it this week. I just dare you. I dare you, if you, you know, you've, you're a farmer and you go up to the coffee shop with the guys, I just dare you to wear it. I dare you to wear it if you're a housewife and you're doing, you know, just even around the house or go to the grocery store, you wear it. I said, we're not trying to make fun of anybody. We're not trying to make a, we're just trying to remind ourselves that we are priests. And we do have a problem in this church. And I think the problem is a lot of you think the priests are the, are the paid clergy, are the paid ministers. And you're missing what the Bible's teaching because the Bible says every single member of the body of Christ is a priest. Every single member has, has a ministry. Living proof. Will you pray with me? Father God.